Welcome to the latest episode of the Proof of Delivery cast, talking about all things supply chain and technology to help visionaries like you gain unprecedented insight, foresight, and oversight into your operations and the industry as a whole. We're talking with the who's who of supply chain from around the world about the latest trends, technologies, and tips to help illuminate the hidden potential in every link of your supply chain. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Allen and Caitlin Mercier. Um, so welcome, Eric. It's uh, really great to have you on the, the POD cast. I was just saying to Mike that, you know, we certainly didn't need an excuse to in, invite you on. You're a, a great partner of ours that we've known for years, but um, really timely right now with uh, with all the conversation, uh, you know, going on in the produce industry and with some industry leaders uh, around visibility that's been, that's been happening as part of our Fresh Field Catalyst program. So, um, you know, excited to share some of that conversation and some of those insights uh, in our, our episode today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Yeah, welcome. And it's our first in-studio guest. So we're we're sort of getting things a little bit back to normal in there. It's great. It's yeah, awesome. fantastic. Yeah, you bet. Well, and uh, just before we jump into some uh, some background on on provision, um, you know, wanted to just uh, comment on how exciting it is that we have uh, you know two Calgary companies and uh, and three Canadian companies as part of a cohort of twelve international companies for the IFPA program. That's really neat. Yeah, really cool. And you know, when we got into that to see your name beside ours so quickly. There's a little bit of chest pounding that happens for Western Canada, right? And all in one city as opposed to the traditional saturation out east. Yeah, you bet. No, it's nice to be making, uh, you know, a bit of a of a of a splash on the global stage, and uh, you know, U.S. and 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 Europe and other places like that. It's uh, it's nice that uh, we're getting some recognition for uh, where where Calgary's at right now. Slowly but surely, right? The Canadians yeah. will weasel our way in there. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Eric, um, give us a bit of background on provision analytics and, and how your your team got your start. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a bit of a winding tale, as I've told far too many times. My The original concept for provision was focused on, you know, driving more visibility and eliminating fraud in the wine market. That was really the deep dive approach that I'd taken, and I was so deep in this through 2017, looking at blockchain solutions and a myriad of other things. I had acquired level three of, I guess, what most people know to be the sommelier in my mid-20s as a hobby or a passion project. And looking for kind of a career change in my early 30s, I really started to look at that market, the amount of fraud that was there. Spent some time in Europe, quickly realized that a lot of that's indoctrinated within the supply chain and you're not going to solve that for years and decades. You know, maybe somebody smarter than me, but I <laughs> certainly realized right there that it was way over my head. So on that return from Europe, what turned out to be the first time, I was heavily looking now at transitioning the idea from this wine and you know supply chain concept to just identifying every opportunity I could find in food. The original idea then still being this broad, big data type solution. If you had data, what could you do with it? A really, quite frankly, ignorant approach. And in early 2018, I noticed a program that Maersk was hosting. So the world's largest shipping company based in Copenhagen. They were hosting an open contest for any entrepreneurs that had unique ideas on reducing food loss in the supply chain. Because I had this stack of bullet points that I had recorded for the better part of a year. I just started typing into this application. Didn't think much of it. 
What I didn't realize is that I had applied in the program with like 20 hours left in a six month <laughs> application window and poured in all this information. The following Wednesday morning at 5 a.m., I got a call from two incredible ladies at Marisk saying, congratulations, you've been selected as one of 10 out of 400 global applicants for this thing. And they're like, can you move to Europe in 25 days? <laughs> and, you know, you kind of look around and I was like, all right, uh, you know, I perceive this to be some sort of opportunity in life, quit my job and found an Airbnb for a month, moved to Copenhagen. I think it's interesting the point you made about um, <clears throat> just having so much visibility into wine as an example, but not nearly as much in the in, in food. Yeah. And I, if you look at the wine market, I think it's still largely that way. It's the only decommoditized product on earth because mm -hmm. whether you know a lot about wine or nothing at all, it carries some level of luxury and uh, I don't even know what other word you could use, but people always perceive wine to be a driver. And if you bring a nice bottle of wine to somebody's house, therefore, if you start to look into the supply chain and you start talking about fraud and you get these fancy documentaries on Netflix, people feel like they can relate to it because they see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. If you talk about food, most people think that food comes from the grocery store and it's just ubiquitous. It's always there. You don't know that food could be differentiated. Right. Um, and so uh, are, are you seeing more companies starting to think about differentiating food and appreciating like the appreciation growing for that data? I think that's an amazing question. I think the topic of decommoditization has slowly started to pick up in the last six to 12 months. I was at, uh, I was at a program called Dune Insights at the beginning of May in Santa Cruz, California. That was one of the panel discussions. That's the first time personally that I've seen it addressed by quite frankly, anybody hmm. more at that, like what I want to say is like industry leader type level, your VCs, your, you know, the managing partners of key VCs some really strong uh, thought leaders. One of the panelists was a woman named Shauna Day, who she's based in California. She's been a key investor and advisor for us. She's actually the one that's pulled together all of these market maps that you'll see in ag and food for the last five or six years. Mm. Having that conversation with her about decommoditization, she sees that, that it's very much in its infancy due to the fact that people have always had access to food, you know, the general idea that produce as much as you can and the consumer will buy it. Where I believe, right or wrong, we're going to see a major differentiation is with all the macroeconomic climate changes right now around food. You've got something like uh, wheat. I believe, and somebody can go and fact check me on this, but I think that China is the largest producer of wheat in the world and India is about number two. Number three could be the Ukraine and then somewhere the US and Canada and Argentina, Brazil, everyone falls out. But when you've got something like that happening, everyone's looking at a crisis. Well, ultimately now with India and China closing their borders for export, you start to drive, you know, these unique value props in the product that you produce now. So if India is no longer exporting and China is no longer exporting, but now Canada is, maybe that changes our export opportunities. And we can say, hey, look, our product has these attributes. And that changes a long-term trade demand for a product source from Canada. It's no mm -hmm. different than canola. Uh, the Chinese just quietly opened that market again for us to get canola out after three years. 
I believe they 40% of all canola consumed in China comes from Canada. Hmm. Well, if they close this out for three years and you're sourcing it from somewhere else, why didn't you just keep doing that? There must be something unique about the Canadian product, and I'm sure we could talk about that for hours, but that would be your first look at decommoditization on a traditional commodity. Mm-hmm. You can differentiate chocolate, you could differentiate apples or seafood or whatever, with a, whatever type of marketing tactics mm-hmm. you want. But when it comes to a pure play commodity, barley, wheat, soy, whatever it is, we haven't really seen that. And until you can get to that end of your commodity spectrum, I think the concept of decommoditization has a long way to go. But data is going to be that driver. And whether it's Routique providing it or Provision providing it or any other dozen competitors eventually, it's data that drives that information Mm -hmm. due to the fact that in the food supply chain, everyone just eats as much as they can and grab whatever they can as a necessity from the grocery store. So you have no need for differentiating product until people start to see health benefits or price benefits or whatever it is. Well, and it sounds a little bit like akin to the ESG movement where, um, you know, there's a tendency before this to say we're doing this in terms of the environment or social side with absolutely no basis in reality and no way to, to, to verify that. But it sounds like what you're talking about is a similar thing on, on the, you know, the, the provenance side is if you want to give, you know, that you look at a restaurant and, and the difference between a good, I think it was, it was Jerry Seinfeld or someone who said the difference between a good restaurant and a bad restaurant is the menu. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one will say veal cutlet and the other one will say the veal has been lightly slapped and sequestered in a five-star hotel for five weeks while it aged. And, um, <laughs> you know, giving, giving, uh, some, uh, something, a backstory like that is what luxury brands have been, have been doing for years. Um, and sort of exposing the the craftsmanship and the history and that kind of thing, and it sounds like f- from what you're saying that it's 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 that plus the data to actually validate that those backstories are are, are true. Bang on, and I've been kind of you know whipping this for the last three or four years and talking to people about the the concept of traceability. Is you've got Entities like the IFPA with the Produce Traceability Initiative, you've got various other things, regulatory bodies, the FDA, USDA, rightfully so, and for a very good reason, demanding the desires for traceability. I put very loose air quotes around that. Most people on the planet have broken down the topic of traceability, if they know it or they don't, into three categories. I think, and we believe that there are four, maybe more, but that that first layer to the onion is source of origin or provenance, like Mike, you're suggesting. Where did the coffee beans come from that went into that cup of coffee? Fantastic. That is a marketing play. I call that hipster traceability. (laughs) Tell me where the malts came from that went into my beer, because that's a cool story. You and I can talk about Mm -hmm. that while we have six pints. The second layer to traceability, you go a little bit deeper. This is where you start to get into the world of regulatory. This is the concept of one up, one down, which has really been as, you know, they planted the stake in this in 2011, 12 with FISMA in the US. So Food Safety Modernization Act, Canada followed suit with the Safe Food for Canadians Act. If every company in the supply chain can tell me one up the supply chain, where they got their raw materials from, and one down the supply chain, you have this uh, borderline you know, perfect scenario in the supply chain now where everyone's responsible for their own house. You tell me one up, one down, 
that's going to eventually solve the recall problem. Mm -hmm. Taking you to level three, which is the concept of mock recall or recall responsibility. Because I know that information, then I can reach up or down. I can either slap my suppliers for their compliance and their risk, or I can move downstream and warn my customers that something's been contaminated. Where we're looking at it, and to bring this full circle back to the data concept, is the root cause analysis or a level four kind of deep traceability as we refer it. That is the actual food safety records or compliance records or traceability records. All of that stuff that is traditionally on paper, 95 plus percent of the ecosystem worldwide, still on paper, that's all that data that actually covers and represents what you say on those certificates. So when you get into that world of deep traceability or data analysis, it's looking at the decisions and the data points on those records to determine where the risk points are in a facility, in a supply chain, whatever that is, instead of just saying, oh, hey, I've got this certificate for these apples, therefore I'm legit. Right. You can modify a PDF all you want. Right? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And so based on where this, this trajectory that we're on, what does it look like 10 years from now then? I think, you know, I'm not going to be the one to predict the future. I'm sure you guys probably have more information and, you know, as much guidance around that as I do. But I think the concept of decommoditization combined with this thought of deep traceability, they ultimately pair, right? The more data that you've got on a food product, the more you can differentiate the price. You're naturally going to have a more competitive market. Everyone's talking about food security or insecurity issues, access to different commodities. That is my opinion of where I believe it'll go in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. You're going to start to see decommoditized value points, data drivers, as companies like Provision and Routique start to change the industry and collect more data, you've got those proof points. Uh, I'm sure there'll be new business models that spin up all around that. But the result is a completely new economy around food, whether it's manufacturing or sourced information or handling or whatever. Yeah, that's very cool. That's, you know, when you go, you go back to the comment about whether it's a marketing play or not, I mean, that's all that data, it'll, it'll be cyclical. And then, you know, marketers need points of differentiation. And if they're, if they lack them, it's harder to actually, you know, differentiate on the marketing side as well. So you'll see that sort of cycle play out where the more points of differentiation you can identify and then prove, um, you know, the more chance there is to actually sort of promote that. And then the more chance there is to, uh, you know, to create a bit of a premium and, uh, you know, like your comment about like, like the, the the frugal luxury side of things, the, all the all the research that talks about, you know, the times like now and times of uncertainty or the Great Depression where, you know, the, there's a sort of a, a counter effect to frugal luxury products where they actually go up during those times, right? They talk about movie tickets during the Great Depression because that was, everybody had to have something. Uh, they, they needed something even in the worst of times. So you would see the really big ticket purchases maybe drop off. Uh, or 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 be postponed, but you'd see premium products that are sort of everyday uh, alternatives to everyday commodities uh, actually go up in sales because people needed to give themselves some sort of sense of of luxury. So I think that's actually a really interesting point. And um, uh, you know the the idea that uh, 
you know, we've lost some of our rituals, you know, like the, 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 the speed of, of an efficiency of getting things has, you know, given us this unprecedented access, but no joy, right? It's, it's not, it's not fun to consume, you know, a hamburger, a fast food hamburger, I guess it can be, it depends on where you go, but, uh, you get consumption for consumption's sake or for, you know, survival's sake, as opposed to, you know, a nice coffee in a nice coffee shop where you can actually sit and enjoy it's the experience more than anything, right? And and to be able to give that, imbue that into a a food product with with, with that kind of data, I think is pretty exciting. So Yeah, and you know, maybe that's a question I put to you guys is where you're looking at almost like not necessarily shrinking the supply chain, but shrinking the time of products in the supply chain. If you're working on elements of inventory access and visibility to that inventory down to last mile delivery and connecting the consumer almost directly to the supply chain, mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're talking about experience. I think about 10 years ago, you used to have to go out to your favorite restaurant to get that plate mm -hmm. that you wanted. Now I can order it on my couch and have it show up mm -hmm. in, you know, 42 minutes and I can eat it in my underwear. It's like... How much of that do you think is taking away from the differentiation aspect of food product just due to you know accessibility? If a restaurant has a specific plate and now you can get it from anywhere and anyone can get it mm -hmm. instantaneously, do you think that that takes the allure of something like traceability or data differentiation away? Does it just become too ubiquitous to matter? Yeah, I think um, you know Amazon probably did more than anyone else to make speed of delivery, such a point of differentiation that I catch myself doing it all the time. I'll have a product that I want to order and I can get it cheaper and it'll take four weeks or I can get it instantly and pay a little bit more. And I, even though I don't need it right away, I'll still, the, the addiction to the speed of delivery is so high, um, which is sad, but it, it's also interesting that they were able to take something like that and make it so, um, you know, it's it's literally like a drug that you become addicted to the, to the point where you're like, today? I'm not going to get something that's today. I want it this afternoon. Um, when you absolutely have no earthly reason to need that, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, I, th I think it's it's cycling where we'll, you know, we, we lose something on one side, but there's other ways to gain it uh, in other areas. And I think um, and what you guys do and what we do, you try to create more choice in the market and try to allow, you know, some of the big retailers, they're not going to go away, um, but they need differentiation too, right? You'll see every retailer in the grocery side have a farm to table section or a artisanal section or whatever you want to call it. And um, customers are obviously demanding that, but then you've got more fragmentation, you've got lower volumes, you've got more, you know, complications in the logistics space. Uh, but, but, you know, there's a demand for that, right? So it's I, technology kind of takes something away, but then it also gives you something back, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. When it can be a driver of that differentiation as well. You know, I think, um, you know, you talk to you know, grower, packer, shippers, and um, they're really trying to differentiate their produce based on flavor, based on freshness. And so um, logistics it plays a, a, a large part in that. And so what's the shortest window between when that product is harvested and uh, and when that product arrives on the shelf, because, you know, if a, if a consumer knows that I can purchase this brand of lettuce and it's reliably delicious, I, I enjoy the flavor and I know I can expect a certain amount of shelf life on it. You know, you can start to build some um, some loyalty uh, for for some of these these brands. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, like you, you guys are probably seeing this at Provision, you know, as much or more than we are is the, things like the COVID crisis and, and you know, the, the Ukraine situation. Um, as terrible as this, it's, it is for everyone, it's called to attention these things no one ever thought about. Like you mentioned, you know, no one knows where their food comes from. It's just there. It just, you know, it, it just exists in the grocery store and the story is irrelevant to me. Now, all of a sudden, the story is becoming relevant. And part of that is because we can't get the things that we need. And then you start asking questions. Why is that, right? Why, why are there no vehicles right now? Like, how hard is it to produce a vehicle? Well, it's the chips. And why is that? And how, you know, it's really opening up an interesting conversation that, like you said, the, the scarcity is creating the demand to know why. So it's not so much they want to know the history of what they're getting. They want to know the reason why they're not getting the things that they thought they should be getting. And that's actually creating more demand for the, the things you're talking about, I think. For sure. And I think about COVID as much as in the short term, it definitely impacted us and so many businesses in terms of sales cycle. It also put this massive spotlight on what we do and where we focus. Then you see metrics like food loss go up. If you've got these impacts in the supply chain, we'll just use the lime example forever here. If all the limes disappear, then you put in a big order of limes. Well, then it creates this, you know, that whole bullwhip concept is now there's a delay and then you have too many limes for people to purchase. Creates this backup in the supply chain, starts to drive these food loss mm -hmm. aspects, right? We've seen uh, prospects we've talked to, clients that we have, their food loss metrics going up by 30% year over year because now mm -hmm. they can't they can't accurately predict their inventory turnover. And I mean, that falls right into the wheelhouse of a lot of the things you guys are doing, yeah. which is volume yeah. management, right? Yeah, the just in time versus just in case. You know, nobody thought through the fact that, oh, now my storage is, I'm, you know, 30% short on my storage. And that's not an easy thing to find. And that's why you're seeing warehouses from the tiniest ones to the biggest distribution centers being more, you know, more than 100% full all the time because you have to have more safety stock than you thought you had. And you never built that into your model until now. And, uh, and the consequences are you end up going and buying all the product and, and sitting on inventory longer, but you haven't thought through the fact of what that's going to do to your storage until you see that build up. And by then, you know, you, you're, you're going to waste massive amounts of food before you ever figure out how to acquire and provision more space that's going to work for you. So yeah, that's a huge problem. I think those were those were really the key questions that uh, that we had coming into this conversation, and you know, really, really looking forward to continuing the conversation across the next six months through this fresh field uh, program, and just you know, being able to have some of these conversations with leaders in in the produce industry. So, um, no, appreciate it. Any, any final thoughts that you wanted to add today? Uh, you know, I, I think we did cover you know a number of the key topics that we that we're definitely both talking about and seeing in the industry on a regular basis. I think there's a massive opportunity in collaboration. I think that would probably be my last thought is where there've been so many, I don't want to say one-off, but very pointed and specific solutions happening in the world of food and ag that is so massive. I think the one stat that I heard is that there's a hundred times more data points in food and ag as an economy compared to the number two, which you could debate is energy or healthcare. And with that opportunity, it's great if you're working on aromatics or you're working on last mile delivery or you're working on food safety, you're working on soil mechanics. 
as all of those things come together, they're going to be winners and losers. You're going to see some consolidation in the market in the next two, three, four, five years. And as that happens, there's mega opportunity for collaboration. I've seen that. Provision has seen that in the last year. We're having a lot more discussions about integration. How can we help and refer clients to each other? How can you start to glue together the ecosystem? Because alternatively, you end up with some of these enormous companies. Uh, FBN, cool company, raised a lot of money. Indigo Egg raised, I don't know, like a trillion billion dollars. <laughs> and they've had some turnover. And I think that is too vast and it's too big for one company to tackle it all in a reasonable amount of time. So I don't know, maybe like my last thought is really around collaboration. What are you guys seeing? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the the collaboration side is huge and from startups to enterprises working together to other startups to startups and and you know different complementary technologies from one sector to another i think that's all what drives innovation for sure awesome yeah that'll do well thank you so much for coming and also being our, our first in-house guest which is great um yeah looking forward to chatting more we can put some information about uh provision you know whatever you want to kind of let people know we'll put it uh into the episode uh uh notes and and uh yeah if people want to reach out or get more information they always can and uh, you know as we always say like if anybody has any topics they want us to cover any any follow-ups they want us to do we're happy to do that uh love to get some interaction going and, uh, and and figure out what people are looking to learn more about but yeah thanks so much eric really appreciate it and uh yeah we'll uh post this up and, and see where it goes. Awesome. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me in. No awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. Make sure to check out future episodes of the Proof of Delivery cast, which come out every month. In the meantime, keep an eye on our YouTube channel for additional content throughout the month. If you'd like to learn more from Routik, you can find us on every major social media platform by searching Routik or the handle at Routik. Or feel free to chat with us directly by visiting www.routik.com. Routik gives supply chain visionaries the x-ray vision they need to make their companies more efficient, responsive, and profitable.